Welcome to episode 106. It's a kind of bonus episode to make up for the fact that uh, this interview has already been done and was not recorded with episode 104. So uh, Phil Reidinger has agreed to uh, meet with us again uh, to do an interview, uh, uh, a kind of makeup interview, uh, and we're releasing it as episode 106. Uh, it's really a pleasure to have Phil with us today. Uh, Phil is somebody I have known since he was at uh, the Justice Department's computer crime section uh, in the early 1990s. Uh, he left there uh, to join Microsoft to become one of their security gurus. He left Microsoft to join uh, uh, DHS to be what amounts to their chief technical uh, uh, security uh, uh, person uh, at the top of the protectorate directive. Uh, um, he left there to, uh, to join Sony as CISO uh, uh, and left Sony to start his own uh, uh, consulting firm. Uh, I should say he joined before the first big Sony breach and left, so he, he joined after the first big Sony breach and left before the second and most notorious uh, North Korean breach. Uh, uh, and he is now launching something called the Global Cyber Alliance that we want to talk uh, about um, in some detail. But before we do, uh, I can't resist, uh, Phil, asking you, you spent a lot of time at DHS, and uh, as an alumnus, uh, uh, I'm sure you have, as I do, a sort of soft spot for DHS, uh, especially on this mission. Um, how do you think they're doing, uh, uh, especially since you left, uh, uh, and, and for that matter, how are we doing as a country uh, in terms of grand cybersecurity strategy? Well, Stuart, I'd say thank you again for, for having me. Um, you've given me actually a very great gift because now in the future when people ask me about the best interview I ever gave, I can always say, well, there was this one I did with Stuart and Alan that wasn't recorded. And so I've got that my whole life, and nobody ever can shoot me down because of it. So it was a great interview. It was, it was actually exceptional. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll do our best to repeat it. Um, so I think those are two different questions. Let me start with the one how we're doing um, as a country, if you will, or as a global uh, collective um, in terms of uh, the prevention of uh, cyber events. I'd say uh, we are essentially in a war and we're losing. Um, we The overarching paradigm of cybersecurity today, right, is that offense wins. And that's actually not getting better. It's getting worse. So the good guys get better year over year, but the bad guys are getting faster. And so the overall state of cyber risk is getting worse and worse year to year. Um, in terms of how DHS is doing, DHS is in a very difficult position. Uh, I think that they haven't really gotten a major authorities uptick until <clears throat> the end of the last year. Um, and I think they're going to do their best to execute on those. Um, as you know from your time there, as well as I do, Stuart, it's a, it's a difficult place to succeed uh, because you know, for a whole number of reasons, including that the instead of having one major committee that gives you oversight and gives you protection and tells you what they want and helps you move things along, you've got something like 108 committees, um, all of whom are against you to a greater or lesser extent. And some of the people try to help you at certain times, but it's, it's, a, it's very much a, a place that is chaos-driven. Um, 
where there are multiple missions that are hard to coordinate. And I actually think DHS is doing a very good job in cyber over the last few years trying not to do and be everything to everybody and try and pick a few mission statements and really move those forward, um, like indicators and warning sharing right now. And I think that's, you know, that's exactly the right thing to do. It's much better in the current environment to find a place or two where you think you can make a difference and do your best to make a difference there as, a pro- as opposed to trying to progress on multiple fronts, which is really impossible to do. Yeah, I th- that makes perfect sense, uh, uh, and I agree with you that uh, uh, doing a few things well is uh, the key for DHS because doing many things poorly is um, only going to be bad for their reputation, uh, uh, but it does mean that there's a lot that's not being done in domestic uh, uh, cybersecurity defense, and uh, we've got a long way to go. I would say it's also a sad time, I think, for the country in terms of our ability to make progress. You know, this year as an election year is going to be almost a lost year in terms of the ability to make significant progress. Um, I think there were a lot of very good proposals in um, the president's recent budget announcement or budget-focused announcement. Uh, Almost all of those are a dead letter. Uh, because I don't think the Congress is going to move forward on any substantial budgetary enhancements for the current administration. Uh, the one thing uh, that I'm, I actually drew a lot of uh, hope from in the announcement was that the administration, in saying that the government needed to do a better job of outsourcing cybersecurity, didn't just say outsourcing cybersecurity. They said outsourcing IT. Um, I think it's abundantly clear that the government doesn't just need to get out of most of the business of cybersecurity. It needs to get out of most of the business of IT because it's never going to be able to keep pace with the cloud and what's happening in the commercial sector using standard government channels. So I'm actually hopeful that if we could have you know, most of the government run out of Amazon and Azure and Google and some other big providers and have services delivered by them and consume security along with the IT service as opposed to buy an IT service and buy a security service that we're going to get to a place that we want to be much faster. This is reminding me of some of the debates we used to have when we were both at DHS. (laughs) Um, What do you think about the, the president's announcement that there will be a federal CISO in the executive office of the president. How does that intersect with DHS and its roles in the .gov defense? And I should say that's Alan Cohen asking the question. Uh, uh, Alan, uh, uh, welcome, and I appreciate your, uh, your jumping in on this. Absolutely. So, Alan, I think that's sort of to be determined. Uh, I mean, we... There's nothing new under the sun, right? And we're, we're almost kind of back where we were when um, GSA and OMB were sort of more in the driver's seat. Um, I actually, I don't know. Um, I don't yet have a real sense of where things are going to settle in terms of what the operating construct for cyber will be in the government. Um, I think it's it's at this point unsettled who's going to have the primary role with the private sector and whether it's going to be the Department of Commerce or DHS, despite what the policies say. Uh, and if you know if DHS is you know .gov focused and there's a CISO in OMB, 
how are the roles and responsibilities are going to work? Um, Jim Lewis likes to say that there are there are three elements of bureaucratic power, and that should say Jim Lewis from the Center for Strategic International Studies: um, resources, authorities, and access to the president. Um, and you can see that there might be splits along those different pieces. There are already differences in terms of the amount of power DHS has um, vis-a-vis either DOJ or DOD in that space. And a federal CISO, you know, while a good idea from uh, an overarching perspective, how it's going to work bureaucratically, I couldn't really tell you. Right, especially with the Congress and seemingly enhancing the role of DHS in that space. Um, now introducing another layer, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I can see how it could be positive. You know, it's very, very hard for any cabinet agency to tell another cabinet agency how to suck eggs. Um, and you know, cybersecurity is almost inherently that sort of space. You need to do your business this way because cybersecurity is embedded with IT, which is embedded with the mission statement. So it's a bit like an entity like DHS telling DOD how to be, well, it wouldn't be DOD so much, but DOJ how to be a law enforcer. And that doesn't sit well. So you often need, even no matter what authorities you've got, you're going to need some sort of White House backing. Actually, I think that's one of the reasons why it's really good to transition to uh, either cybersecurity services or more hopefully IT services, because then the direction can go from an entity like DHS or a CISO to the private entity, and the services can be consumed in a uniform way across the federal government. So maybe we could uh, uh, talk about what you're planning to do about all this. Uh, uh, The Global Cyber Alliance is something that you're obviously, uh, it's a labor of love, uh, uh, but, you know, uh, those three words together uh, are probably in the titles of four or five organizations already. Uh, What is the Global Cyber Alliance going to do? The goal of the organization is actually not to be both a floor wax and a dessert topping. Um, It's to focus on specific things. It came about um, out of, I think, some frustration from the district attorney of New York County, Cy Vance Jr., uh, that cyber was a, a, a risk, an issue that you couldn't deter your way out of. And he was interested in using some of the asset forfeiture resources that he had to work on the prevention front. Um, because I think it's a fair claim to make that if we actually had much better prevention, if cyber were a safer place to be, that deterrence would actually be much more effective. Um, and he partnered with both the City of London Police and the Center for Internet Security to found this new organization in September of last year, um, and I agreed to come on as the president and CEO in December. Um, it's an organization that's focused on doing exactly what I want to do and exactly what I think ought to be done. And again, it's it's not about trying to be everything to everybody. It's about doing particular things. The vision statement for the organization is do something, measure it. And those are the two things that I'm actually most passionate about in cyber right now. The do something is, you know, there's lots of people out there producing reports and recommendations and strategies and telling you all the different things that need to happen. And that's all good. I'm not criticizing those people at all. It's nice to have a lot of thoughts. What we're precious short on is execution, on implementation. And so the focus, the main focus of, of GCA is going to be on that do something part. 
identifying places where we do have a solution, a notional solution, a proposed solution, a likely solution, but we don't have broad deployment of it. And the question is, could we bring a group of people together uh, that are focused on implementation, that see what the current barriers are, can overcome those barriers, and then instead of producing a recommendation, you know, because of phishing, we need to do X, Y, and Z, you know, we are going to implement this project or program. We'll measure the risk before, we'll do the implementation, we'll measure the risk afterward, and the report will, and the, or sort of the result will not be, we think this might be an, a strategy, it's a, the risk was reduced from, you know, four to three based on this set of actions. And we're happy to share everything, and now we're going to work to spread this even more broadly with a goal towards actually eradicating cyber risk the way that the medical community over time has eradicated its own pathogens like polio or smallpox or things or diseases um, or viruses like that. That's the do something part. The measure it is, you know, we're still, and Stuart, you've heard me say this before, Alan, you have, you know, in cybersecurity, we're all a bunch of medieval barbers. We're actually very good medieval barbers. We know where to put the leeches, and you know we know the right herb to pick that will almost always make you better, at least a little bit better, even if it doesn't make you well. Um, but we're not yet scientists. There's, we don't treat cybersecurity the way we treat other real sciences because the technical foundations aren't there. Um, and it's just impossible to do. So what we've got to do is we've actually got to be me able to measure risk. There's a lot of work going on around measuring enterprise risk, and there are standards for that. But an area that, to my mind, we need to make a lot more progress on is measuring systemic risk. So, you know, what is the overall risk um, from DDoS around the world? You know, is it $3 billion or $10 billion or $50 billion? Um, and only if we get that sort of analytical understanding, even if there's a wide margin of error for it, are we going to be really able to prioritize both the things that we want to focus on and the actions that we want to take to prevent those? So the Global Cyber Alliance, along with doing specific things, wants to build the analytical foundation for measuring systemic risk and be able in the long term to drive those ad hoc efforts around specific tasks that we think will have the greatest impact. So you would see kind of gathering different groups of experts around different specific projects, or is this meant to be a standing group that takes on projects either sequentially or in parallel? Um, yes. <laughs> okay. So the do something part. There will be a, it will be a series of task groups, each of which are supported by what amounts to sort of an engine of program management and liaison and writing and measurement that will allow ad hoc formation of groups, say like the Config or Working Group or some of the botnet task force efforts that allow them to spin up and seamlessly make a difference. Um, the measure it part of this is really about having a standing group of experts and then people building the, building the technical capabilities over time so that we can grow from measuring these ad hoc efforts to measuring the global efforts. And that I expect will have an advisory committee associated with it particularly and a number of people and experts brought in to help do the development and gathering of the data feeds will need to be able to do the measurement. And so I mean, you talked about um, the key partnership with the um the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. You also have a key partnership with the City of London Police. Should we take from that that you'll 
focus first or more on the law enforcement, cyber crime prosecution aspect uh, of the problem? Uh, or is or, are you, or do you not, not see that as really the starting point? That's not the starting point. It may be – it's all a question of effectiveness. So uh, what we're looking at right now are the set of risks that we want to take on. And then each risk will be driven by what's the most effective thing we can do. Is there a proposed solution we can implement? Um, and a lot of those are going to be technical. You know, you're going to be dealing with IT companies and telecommunications providers more than you are law enforcement. While you may generate data that will help bring law enforcement to bear and make deterrence more effective, um, other places you can think that the solution might actually be more law enforcement focused. You know, one example might be ransomware. Let's say we decided to take on a project around ransomware. It's There are a few technical things you could do, but you know that's that could easily become a boiling the ocean problem. Like, well, we need to secure the client. Um, and that's not something that is the sort of short-term thing that we would want to take on. Um, <clears throat> but we might be able to attack that by working with banks and law enforcement entities, for example, to try and attack the monetization channel. So that's all to be determined, and it depends on the particular risk we want to tackle. You know, would you look at the law side also in terms of, you know, there's been discussion about um, things like uh, pushing greater adherence to the Budapest Convention, uh, other efforts to, to harmonize cyber crime laws across borders. Uh, Alan, the answer to that is maybe. Um, generally, no. And the reason generally no is our, our goal is to do these in sort of six-month to one-year chunks, maybe up to two-year chunks. And if you're, you know, if it's get together an international group and write a convention and develop policies, I mean, you're talking five to ten years, right? And we actually want to measure differences in a year or two. Um, but if there are places on the policy front that you could move things forward and actually try to measure things, or you could do so in a particular jurisdiction, it's not out of bounds. It's just less likely. You know, we're our operate our modus operandi, if you will, is uh, we're a coalition of the angry. Um, we we want to get people who are as mad as hell and don't want to take it anymore. If you've seen the movie Network, um, and we want to bring them to bear. And angry people have less patience. Um, they want to get stuff done. And you could substitute another word for stuff in a lot of those cases. It's actually true. People want to do things, and so what we're trying to do is harness the energy of companies and subject matter experts who just want to move the ball. So so, uh, so it totally makes sense to try to stay out of the five to ten year time frame, but is there something about those earlier efforts, the Conficker Working Group, other similar kind of ad hoc groups that came up around specific threats or specific bugs that that isn't going to fit in kind of a structured process from one particular group? Is the spontaneity of those efforts part of their strengths? I think that is possibly true, but I don't, I don't want to inhibit that. First off, I'd say I don't want to tell anybody don't spin up another spontaneous effort and you know, we're going to be the king or queen and everybody should come to us. All I want to do is build a mechanism that will make those sort of dedicated efforts seamless. So <clears throat> it won't be the case if you needed a, a conficker-like working group. Um, to tackle a problem that you need to say, well, we need a bunch of industry players to come together and they need to contribute money and we need to find a law firm to host this or a lo lobbying agency and we need to – and so it's like you know five weeks and you're still working this out. 
or you know you've got a group of subject matter experts, but they're trying to do the program management you know in their own cycles, and that's a silly way. You know, you get some of the people that are involved in these groups having them do program management is a damn poor way to have them spend their time. What I'd like to be able to offer them is either on an ad hoc or a planned way, we'll give you the support you need. And we don't give a hoot about credit. We don't, it's not a pay-for-play model, so you don't have to get funding in advance to get this done because we've actually got seed funding, and we're going to be seeking <coughs> sustaining funding from other people in industry. And so anybody who wants to participate can participate. So, and so you talked about that these, are, these will be the kind of efforts that the alliance starts with, but the goal is to try to get to the systemic risk question, to use kind of the, the simplistic formulation of risk, of threat and vulnerability and consequence. Where do you see, you know, the efforts returning the most investment or alternately just being most easy to measure along that, you know, along those elements? Is it in the threat space or the, the mitigating vulnerabilities or the, or the reducing the, the, you know, the explosion of consequences? Um, <clears throat> I, it's going to depend, again, on the risk. We're willing to cover any of those spaces. <clears throat> you know, if you think about the ransomware example I gave, um, that's really a mixture of it, – it's really attacking consequence – even though the vulnerability is still there, as an incentive to reduce the threat in the long run, which reduces the risk. Um, a lot of them may be vulnerability-focused, and I think vulnerability is often a more leveraged way to attack these because you know threat is very much whack-a-mole, and we don't want to get into whack-a-mole spaces. Um, Consequence will be interesting. You know, I think you know, ransomware is a great example where it may be consequence-driven. I suspect you know, we're willing to look at any of those things. You know, the, I had an interesting conversation with somebody else where we talked about um, you know, how to address malaria, um, and you know that you know, they might be interested in a particular place, like you know, increasing, reducing the swamps, draining the swamps so there are fewer mosquitoes. Um, you know, we're very much interested in working with anybody and figuring out what's the way to introduce. In, Reduce the risk of sickness, um, and it doesn't matter whether it's making the swamp better, whether it's spraying for mosquitoes, or whether it's inoculating people so that even though they're bitten, they don't get sick. So well, let me let me try to close this up by asking you about one of my pet ideas, which is that uh, um, attribution and retribution are going to have to be significant features of any true deterrence of uh, cybercrime. Uh, and what's striking to me is that thus far, we've done our attribution mostly by accident. That is to say, we've used the tools that we have for protecting ourselves to also figure out who's attacking us. But it seems to me that uh, it would be possible to design defensive, protective tools that further attribution that make it easier to attribute uh, uh, the attack. Uh, and we ought to uh, launch a project to say what kinds of defensive tools should we use if we know we want to do better attribution. Stuart, you're, you're preaching to the converted on that. I, I know one can easily fall afoul of people who think it um, restricts privacy to do better attribution, but I'm not one of those people. Um, as a former prosecutor, and then I, having worked for DOD for a while, I, I think attribution is really important. And I agree with you completely that in a future environment where you know it, it's not a case where we're on the, we're in the middle of a war zone where 
you are as safe online as safe offline. And so there is a significant risk of being caught and significantly uh, punished if you commit a cybercrime that deterrence, in fact, will be a valuable tool. I think we very much need to get there. It's very much our intent, I think, as we go forward to tackle projects to see if while we're doing that we can help to generate data that will enable better deterrence. Um, And deterrence, of course, depends on attribution Um, in a way that doesn't um, infringe privacy at all but helps catch the, the bad guys. So I'd like to build that All into right. a number of projects. Yeah, so no, I, I, I think uh, that's uh, exactly what we want to do. And so if there are listeners who have ideas for how uh, um, our defensive tools could be improved uh, uh, so as to make attribution uh, easier, uh, uh, you're pushing on an open door with the Global Cyber Alliance. You should uh, get in touch with Phil and tell him uh, what your idea is, and maybe he can put a project together around it. Excellent. Okay, so uh, the, the, before we close, there was one other uh, recent professional interaction we've had. Uh, you filed a FOIA case with the FTC to find out what their uh, security standards were and how they arrived at them. Uh, and uh, when the FTC stiffed you, uh, uh, I uh, represented you in court to uh, uh, try to persuade the FTC to be a little more forthcoming. Uh, can you tell me why you filed the FOIA case in the first place? Absolutely, Stuart. Um, and thank you again for uh, you and Steptoe uh, being being my lawyer. Um, the <clears throat> I saw a presentation in the fall of last year from one of the commissioners of the Federal Trade Commission that specifically dealt with the Federal Trade Commission's use of their Section 5 unfair trade practice authority in cybersecurity cases, something I think a number of your, well, probably all of your listeners are somewhat familiar with because there's been a reasonable amount of litigation around it. Um, I had never really focused that much on it before or paid attention, but as I listened to the commissioner speak about it, you know, the I used to do civil work before I got into cybercrime, and I just, you know, part of my body was sort of saying to me, you know, this sounds a lot like a non-delegation doctrine, or, and I realized eventually that it wasn't so much that, but it, it felt to me like the Federal Trade Commission was bringing what amounts to criminal processes and criminal um, penalties to bear for what it was alleging were effectively negligence cases, and it was trying to get the prosecutorial discretion and all of the defenses of the criminal realm in a case where there was not the sort of notice that you typically have, the clear rules that differentiate criminal conduct from non-criminal conduct. And so I thought, you know, well, that seems odd, and wouldn't we actually be in a better position if the FTC actually told people what their standards were? So I sent them a FOIA request, uh, I think in October of last year, and um, after some delays in December, right, actually on Christmas Eve, Um, They told me in very nice and lawyerly terms to go pound sand that they had documents, but that they weren't going to give any of them to me because they were all protected by the deliberative process or work product privilege. So I did my own administrative appeal being a recovering lawyer. And then in February, um, they told me at a higher level within the Federal Trade Commission to go pound sand. And so at that point, I, I spoke to you knowing that you were a kindred spirit in the desire for both more cybersecurity, but perhaps a better due process um, around cybersecurity. And Steptoe graciously agreed to take the matter forward. Um, And since then, we've had a very 
cooperative and friendly case against the Federal Trade Commission where um, I can say pretty much, I think without exception, they've been willing to provide lots and lots and lots. Oh, by the way, until I filed the lawsuit, they didn't give me any documents. Since then, we've gotten well over 10,000 pages of um, near drivel, all public stuff with a couple of exceptions, and then lots of what are called Vaughn indexes, which are the legal way that a, a company or an entity like the FTC tells you to go pound sand, that tells you here are all of the documents that are really interesting and respond, and you can't have them, and here's why. Yes, I, it, I, and I, I have to say their, their litigation style, although I, I agree with you, they've been polite, has been as unyielding as one could possibly imagine. Uh, I think if, if um, you had been a, uh, a fraudster from St. Louis, uh, um, fresh from uh, uh, defrauding women and children of uh, their uh, uh, funds, they would not have litigated any more aggressively because they, they couldn't have. Uh, uh, I, 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 I will draw your attention to something that we're going to talk about uh, on a uh, upcoming news roundup. Uh, that illustrates the difficulty of the kind of covert regulatory uh, uh, agenda that they are implementing. Uh, they've always said, and, and they said this in very recent uh, guidance, uh, of course you should change your password frequently. Uh, and that is sort of common advice uh, along the order of, you know, uh, eat a good breakfast every morning. Um, but uh, their new chief technologist, Lori Kramer, has just uh, released uh, uh, an op-ed based on some research that uh, her institution did uh, that shows that uh, the more often you change your password, the easier it is to guess. Uh, because um, if you have... Uh, Corporate policies that require people to change their passwords frequently, they choose shorter ones and they adopt uh, mechanisms for changing them every time they're supposed to that make them quite predictable. Uh, uh, and so it, it will be interesting to see uh, how and when the FTC manages to swallow its pride and modify its uh, advice. And this, this sort of shows that they've been... They've been punishing people for uh, not following that advice, and now it turns out the advice is bad. Um, it, ordinarily, you'd expect somebody to write a new reg and explain why they've changed their position, but since the FTC has no regs and has no real explanation of where it gets its, uh, its standards, uh, uh, they're going to have trouble um, defining their new position in a way that people can rely on. Uh, Stuart, let me just add one thing on that. You, I, I wrote a blog post over the summer about what I saw in the public documents that probably wouldn't come as a surprise to anybody who read the thousands of pages that I did when I wrote it. Um, but it was just, it was interesting to me. Like I learned some things that I probably should have known but didn't. Um, for example, that you are effectively negligent now if you don't have a security development life cycle for developing your software that goes into devices. Again, you know, Look, you know, I worked at Microsoft for years. They sort of drove the security development lifecycle. I think it's a fabulous idea. Um, I think if you go to, you know, most of the app developers out there, um, you're going to not find a significant security development lifecycle. Um, so, you know, if that's a negligence standard, then we live in a world of widespread and almost universal negligence. And I think if, if that's going to be a requirement, then we ought to spend a lot less time 
beating people about the head and shoulders for not doing it and a lot more telling them that that's actually the standard that they need to meet. Well, you know, if you're an FTC commissioner, people treat you much better if they know that they're guilty uh, as soon as you open the investigation so that the the key is not to get you mad. Um, but I agree with you. They, they, they've adopted a standard that is more aspirational than uh, operational in terms of uh, uh, what people are actually doing. It's It's an attempt to change the standards and, and, you know, God bless them, but uh, we don't even know what standards they're adopting and uh, they have no good mechanism for adjusting those standards to reality. So uh, the, the litigation continues and we'll keep releasing those documents as, as we get them. Uh, I, and uh, I've enjoyed it as much as you have. Uh, the only thing I'd say is, and this without commenting, because I think generally, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of more requirements around cybersecurity. We do have historically in this country a, a means of doing that called the Administrative Procedure Act um, that's often followed by agencies that are engaging in imposing standards on the private sector. Or, or even alternately, we have a process uh, being undertaken by NIST right now to actually line out what uh, what industry should be doing and maybe participating or joining in that process as well would be another way to, to give notice. But I digress. All right. Well, I uh, we've come to the end of the program by uh, – Phil Reidinger, thank you so much. The Global Cyber Alliance, I'm looking forward to your first projects. Uh, it sounds very exciting, and the idea of actually having a do tank out there uh, producing real, live, measurable security improvements would be terrific. Uh, Alan Cohn, uh, uh, formerly with the Department of Homeland Security, thank you for joining our interview. This is Stuart Baker, and this is a uh, kind of... Um, extra uh, uh, episode, episode 106, that we're going to sneak into the lineup uh, to make up for the fact that uh, we left out uh, the interview uh, for episode 104. Uh, uh, in, if you've got uh, suggestions for Global Cyber Alliance projects and you want to send them to us so that we can get them on to uh, uh, Phil, send them to cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Uh, we're always happy to receive good reviews on uh, iTunes uh, and uh, uh, join us again in the future as we produce more of these interviews, hopefully uh, not uh, after having tried to record them twice. Uh, thank you again, Phil. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Alan. Thank you.